All right, why don't we get started? If you would this evening, please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6 and finishing up this letter to the churches that Paul wrote in the region of Galatia. And it's probably the southern churches that uh, are southern areas of Galatia that Paul was writing to, like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, uh, cities that Paul visited on his first missionary journey. And you can read of that in Acts 13, verse 4 through chapter 14, verse 23. But as we finished up last time, Paul sp- spoke of walking in the Spirit and allowing the fruit of the Spirit to be manifested in our lives. And we saw that the fruit of the Spirit is love, and that agape love is then manifested in our lives with joy and peace and long-suffering, with kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul concluded chapter 5 by saying this. He said, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Well, now as we move into Galatians chapter 6 this evening, we see how this is all played out in our lives, this walking in the Spirit. It's how we treat others. And keep in mind, before we can treat our fellow man as God desires, we have to submit to the will of God, the leading of God in our lives. It's that vertical axis that needs to be in line with God. And in this section of Galatians, Paul is going to deal with our horizontal axle, you might say, or our relationship with our fellow man. And we're going to see really how brokenness, surrender, is essential if those relationships are going to grow. One writer put it like this in regards to brokenness. They wrote, by the way, I believe one of the reasons that so many people live with chronic loneliness is that they are unwilling to die. As Jesus pointed out, If a grain of wheat does not fall into the ground and die, it remains alone. Our natural instinct is to hold on protectively to our own lives. When we refuse to shed that hard outer shell called self, no one can get close to us. No one can penetrate or enter into our life. Just as pride repulses God, so pride keeps others from getting close to us. Years ago when I was a college student, I heard Pastor Ray Ortland say, Most churches are like a bag of marbles, all hard and clanging up against one another. Instead, we ought to be like a bag of grapes, squished together so that the juice of his spirit may flow out through us. You see, true Christian community, as Pastor Ray described it, is something few believers ever experience. Because it requires that each individual let go of self and pour out his life on behalf of others. What does this kind of death mean? It means that we must be willing to die to our own interest, die to our own reputation, die to our own rights, die to our own ways of doing things, die to our own comfort, convenience, hopes, dreams, and aspirations. To die means to lay it all down, to give it all up, to let it all go. This may seem difficult, perhaps even unthinkable, to our self-protective, individualistic, rights-oriented minds. But as Jesus went on to tell his disciples, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And, you know, I think today in, in the church in general, this is a hard one because we are really being taught many times to build self up. You know, you can't love others until you love yourself. Well, that's the most ridiculous thing. You love yourself. How do I know that? Because I look out at you guys and your hair is combed. You got makeup on for the ladies. You know, you're all dressed up. You've taken care of yourself because you love yourself. If you hated yourself, you would look horrible because you didn't care. 
But we love self so much, so it's hard to die to self. But that's exactly what the Lord says to us. You have to die to self. You have to put those things aside. And it's hard to surrender, but it's what's needed in our lives. So let's pick up with those thoughts in mind in Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And listen to what Paul says. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You think, well, why would Paul even have to mention this? Because those that are bound in legalism, and that's Paul's whole letter here, legalistic attitudes following the law, they tend to come down hard against those that stumble, those that fall into sin, those that don't live up to a standard that they've set. You see, there is no compassion in the law. There's no love in the law. There's condemnation for not meeting a certain criteria that, again, they have set. And if you doubt that, just read through the Gospels and see how the Jewish religious leaders looked down upon those who didn't meet their standards. The Pharisees, they would walk down the street, but if you would walk by them, they would pull their robes in because they didn't want their robes to touch you because, guess what, you're unclean. And they didn't want to be contaminated by you. That was the whole idea of this legalism. You're separate from me, and I get to look down upon you because you're inferior to me. Now, the thing here is, that Paul brings out is, we are not to destroy or condemn the person, and we're not to condone their sin either. There's a balance. We are to restore them in the faith, Yes, they transgressed. They sinned either willfully or unintentionally. And they don't need excuses. They're not to be ignored, but they're to be restored. In fact, that Greek word for restore carries with it the idea of to put in order, to restore to its former condition. That's interesting because that means they're out of order in the way that they're living. They've fallen. They've stumbled. They're in sin. Now you want to restore them back to the faith. That's what Paul's talking about. In fact, this word was used as a medical term to set a broken or displaced bone. In Mark 1.19, it's used of the apostles mending their nets. You just have to think about this for a minute because it makes perfect sense. If you broke your leg and went to the hospital, what does the doctor do besides taking x-rays? Well, he has to set the bone. He has to put that bone back in place. Now think about it. How does he do that? Does he stand across the room and throw, you know, the casting material at you and say, okay, pull on your leg really hard, and when you hear that thing snap into place, put that cast around it? No. What the doctor does is he gets up close. He has to touch you. He has to come in contact with you to set that bone, to put it in order so it could heal. Will it cause pain? Yeah. You bet it will. But that pain is in response to resetting the bone. And there's healing that then will take place, not destruction. This is done in love, not hatred. To mend a net, you have to physically touch that net and repair it. And that's so true of someone who has fallen into sin. They need someone to help them, to lift them back up, to restore them. We're not to avoid them. We're to come into contact with them. Now, if, some, if there's a Christian who's living in sin and refusing to repent, refusing to get right, there does come a point where you do back off. But the idea here is 
they've fallen and they need someone to help them. Turn to Genesis chapter 9 for a second. It's a story of Noah after the flood. I'm going to read verses 20 through 23 where we're told this. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, notice the difference. Ham gossiped. He was telling others what happened to his father. Yeah, they were his brothers, but did he tell others? We don't know. Shem and Japheth walked in backwards, and they covered their father's sin. That's love. You know, Peter in 1 Peter 4.8 said, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. That fervent love. You care. You want to see him restored. I look at it like this. You know, when you're teaching your child to walk, what happens many times? They fall. They're learning to walk, right? They stumble. Now, do you go up and do you get mad at them and say, I told you so. You're not ready to walk. What's wrong with you? Hopefully you don't do that. If you do, see me afterwards because we need to talk. That would be horrible. In fact, I... Everyone I've seen who's had a little child and they're learning to walk and they're you know, walking the Frankenstein walk, arms are out and they're trying to hold on. And You're praising them. Even when they fall, what happens? You pick them up again. Good job. Keep going. You're encouraging them to go on. And you tell everyone, oh, my little one, you should see him walking. It's so awesome. But what happens many times in the church is that when safe leaders fall, Christians will mock them, put them down, gossip about that person. And it's just not really for leaders. It's for anyone who falls. There are those who are ready to jump on them and keep them down. They don't want to restore them in the faith. They don't want to help them. And that's not at all what Paul is saying here. He's saying that we need to help them. You know, for by the grace of God, we stand. Paul put it, he said, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now, John Stout put it this way, he says, this suggests that gentleness is born of a sense of our own weakness and proneness to sin. How true that is. You know, our sin looks so bad when others are doing it, right? But not when we're doing it. And one of the best examples and tragic examples in the Bible is King David. His sin with Bathsheba, the murder of her husband Uriah. And for some nine months, he hid that sin. He tried to cover it. He was miserable. And God sent Nathan the prophet to him who told him this little story about this man who had this, all these sheep, just all these sheep. And another man who had this little ewe lamb, just a little bitty, itty bitty sheep, you know, he loved the sheep, went everywhere, slept with them. And this man who had all the sheep was having someone come to visit him. And instead of taking from his own flock, he went and took this man's ewe lamb, you know, killed him, cooked him up, and ate him. And David heard that and he goes, That man needs to be put to death. That is horrible. That is unbelievable. And Nathan said, you the man. 
Yeah. Do you see? David thought, that is such a horrible sin. And Nathan said, but look at your sin. Look at what you did. You took another man's wife. You had that man killed in battle. David, you're the man. You see, when David saw his sin on someone else, it was horrible. And now he was seeing a reflection of himself. We need to be wise. We need to be careful. And shouldn't we, as the body of Christ, help each other? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at verse 2 of Galatians 6. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work. And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. You know, have you ever met people who are sagging under a heavy load that's come upon them? And maybe it's you. We've all been there. We've all been weighed down before. And then someone comes alongside and and lifts us up, encourages us. I mean, I've been there many times. I've been blessed by people who have come alongside me and encouraged me in the work, lifted me up. My wife is one of my biggest encouragers. But man, it's, it's like that weight is lifted. And maybe Paul here is just speaking about the law and its heavy burden upon people's lives. It's crushing them under its weight. No one can live up to that standard. And Paul's point is to help them out of that yoke of bondage the law has them in. Restore them in Christ. And in so doing so, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. You're loving others as the Lord commands us. That's what Jesus said in John 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. And by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I always found that interesting. How do we tell who's a disciple of Christ? Is it, you know, the big King James Bible that they have in their laps that they're carrying around? You know, it's about this big. Does that make them a Christian? No. Maybe it's quoting, quoting scripture. They can quote scripture all over the place. Does that make you a Christian? No. You've got a good memory. This idea of agape love, loving one another. And again, it doesn't say just love those that love you. I think that is, again, so important for us to understand. Because, you know, you look at this world today, and are people hurting? Absolutely. And just to go there and, and give them a hug or tell them, you know, hey, is there anything I can pray for you? Is there anything you need prayer for? Lifting their spirits, helping them. And we, don't, we might even think, is, is it such a big deal? Put yourself in their shoes. Yeah, it is a big deal. And, and you look at, you know, here living in the 21st century, all the resources we have at our disposal. It's almost too easy with all the resources we have. You know, you walk into a Christian bookstore and you got books on happiness and marriage and relationships and building self up and all these different things. Most of them are garbage. We have the best book here. It's called the Bible. And yet we have all these books to help build self up. And we're a mess. We're frustrated. We're defeated. Our lives seem empty. We don't feel God's presence in our lives. You think, well, how come? I think it's a heart issue. 
I really don't think it's necessarily an information issue because we have the information all before us. We have plenty of information. The thing is, you have to take that information then and you have to apply it to your life. You have to let it sink deep down into your life and transform you. In Isaiah 57, 15, we're told, For thus says the, lo- the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The Amplified Bible puts it like this. It says, For thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, but with him also who is of a thoroughly penitent and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the thoroughly penitent, to bruise with sorrow for sin. Where does God dwell? In the high and holy place. Where else? In those who have a contrite and humble spirit. The Hebrew word for contrite speaks of being crushed to a powder. And the Hebrew word for humble speaks of being brought low. You know, David, in Psalm 51, said, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in birth offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. You know, God's desire is to revive us, to nourish us, to give us abundant life. But he's not going to force that upon us. He's waiting for us to humble ourselves before him, to give all of ourselves to him. I mean, think about it. How are we doing in regards to brokenness? I think in America we have some strange ideas about being a Christian, what it's all about. And it has nothing to do with brokenness. One writer said, years ago, a missionary served in a region in Africa that had known seasons of true revival. He reported that whenever he would mention the name of any Christian, the national believers would ask him, is he a broken Christian? They didn't ask, is he a committed Christian? Or is he a knowledgeable Christian? Or is he a hardworking Christian? They wanted to know, is he a broken Christian? I think that's kind of interesting because how many books... Do you find in Christian bookstores or in you know, Christian book distributors that teach on brokenness? It's not popular, and yet it's needed in our lives. To examine our hearts, to see if there are areas that we need to be broken in, that we need to give to the Lord, to have a humble heart in. And God will show us. Roy Hessian wrote this. He said, being broken is both God's work and ours. He brings us pressure to bear, but we have to make the choice. All day long, the choice will be before us in a thousand ways. Yeah, we need help. Jesus said in Matthew 21, and whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You know, Jesus is saying, just fall upon me. Give your life to me. And you'll grow. You'll be refreshed. You know, God can take these lives that are nothing and make something out of them for his glory. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, wow, what a great night to come to church. He's talking about being broken. It is a great night. Because if it wasn't needed, you think, 
the Holy Spirit would have put it in here, would have spoken to Paul to teach us on these things? That's how much he loves us. He doesn't want to leave us in a condition where we're a mess. He wants to revive us, restore us. He wants to pick us up, just like Paul is saying we are to do with others. Turn over to Luke for a second. Luke chapter 18. We're going to pick up in verse 9, where we're told this. Chapter 18 of Luke, starting in verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, here is this man, this Pharisee, who's a keeper of the law. And what is he doing? Hey, thank God I'm not like these other people. I mean, look at those losers out there. But I'm a holy man of God. You think there's a little pride there? There's no brokenness. None at all. You think he's gonna, this person is going to help someone who may, be, may have fallen? No. There's too much pride in him. I don't want to get involved with that. And yet here's this other man. To, you know, look at that. God be merciful to me, a sinner. He realized he's nothing. He knows he's in trouble. And God says, this is the one, this heart is right. The other isn't. You know, there is someone who really thought highly of himself that took a big fall. His name was Lucifer. He wanted to be exalted. He wanted to be lifted up. He wanted to be like the Most High. And what does he get others to do today? Exactly what he has done. You see, he's trying to destroy lives. Let me ask you this. Why are you in the ministry, and we're all involved in the ministry, serving in the body of Christ one way or another? Why are you doing it? Are you looking for the applause of men? Are you looking for the praise of men? It's something that I kind of noticed in our day where we want to become popular, we want to associate with a lot of big-name people because it makes us feel important. We look good, you know. We, we kind of throw those names out there. I know so-and-so, you know. So-and-so and I went out to lunch today. And it's almost like we want the applause of, we do want the applause of men. But I'll tell you what, you'll never be satisfied. You'll never be complete. And what you're doing is you're taking the glory from God and you're placing it on you. Do you have to be a name dropper? Do you have to be popular? Or can you serve God? I mean, I look at people, and I'm sure there's just as many here at Calvary of Appleton. Back in Manitowoc, 
who are behind the scenes people. No one knows. They come to church, the church is clean. There's toilet paper in the bathroom. Praise God. I don't know if angels do that, right? No, there's people behind the scenes that are serving, that are not looking for the applause. They're not looking for, and -and so-and-so gets this. Not at all. They just serve. Humble. That's what God is looking for. Not pride, but that brokenness. Realizing, wow, I don't even deserve to serve him. I'm a nobody. I have nothing. And yet he's using me. Now, we have to deal with this point here because in verse 2 and verse 5, it almost sounds like Paul is contradicting himself. In verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens. Verse 5, he said, each one should bear his own load. Well, what is it, Paul? Do you want me to help him? You don't want me to help him. What's up with that? Well, let me explain it like this. The word Paul used, the Greek word in verse 2 for burdens is baros. It's a heavy load. But in verse 5, the word for load or burden is fortion in the Greek. And it speaks of like a backpack, something a soldier would carry, something that's light. So we are to help those with their heavy burdens. But here's the thing. We are also responsible for carrying our own load as we walk with the Lord. Yeah, I mean, we can't depend on people for every little thing. We have to be responsible. We have to carry our load or our backpack in a sense. But yeah, when things get tough, are you going to be there? Are you going to lift people up? You know, Paul in Hebrews said, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We stir each other up. We encourage each other. We help each other. We need to be part of the body of Christ. That's why, you know, I don't know how Christians survive not coming to church. We need each other. And the wonderful thing is, as you take time and you learn where people are coming from, you know some of the things they're going through, you can pray for them because you know them. And Paul finishes there in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day? The day of the Lord. Why? Because it's going to get more intense. I mean, isn't it crazy out there? Good is evil. Evil is good. You shake your head when you listen to the news. You go, I don't get it. And, you know, I don't know if Donald Trump is going to be good or bad. We'll find out. We need to pray for him. But the thing that amazes me is that the news, day in and day out, bashes the guy. Day in, he hasn't even started his, his position as president yet. And then they go, his approval rating's really low. Well, yeah, if I bashed you every single day, your approval rating would be low too. So, you know, think about this. All this stuff is going on. Our, our America is kind of in turmoil. Have you ever seen so many problems with different with race relations with economic backgrounds with this with that with lifestyles we are I know President Obama said he wanted to bring the nation together but I think in eight years he has divided us so much that there's a war going on 
And we need each other. We need to be praying for each other. We need to lift each other up. It's not time to stay apart. It's time to come together. Well, look at verse 6. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. You know, the verse could be translated, let him who receives instructions share with him who gives instructions in all good things. Caring and sharing with each other. I mean, that's what we do. We share God's word. We share the things that God is showing us with others. So they can learn. So they share with us. We learn from them. How important that is. Well, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now, think about it. Two farmers, a farmer or a farmer in general, let's say, he plants his seed, and what he puts in the ground is going to bring forth a crop. There's going to be a harvest. And Paul's whole point here is what are you planting in your life? Because what you sow, what you put into your life, you're going to reap. The agricultural principle is seen in our spiritual life. It's a spiritual principle as well. Yeah, there are mockers of God today like there's always been. And what they sow, they will one day reap. In fact, one writer put it like this, and it's kind of shed some light onto this whole idea of what they've sown, they have reaped. Ernest Hemingway became famous for snubbing his nose at morality and at God, declaring that his own life proved a person could do anything he wanted without paying the consequences. Like many others before and after him, he considered the ideas of the Bible to be antiquated and outdated, completely useless to modern man and a hindrance to his pleasure and self-fulfillment. Moral laws were to him a religious superstition that had no relevance. In mocking parody of the Lord's Prayer, he wrote, Arnata, Spanish for nothing, who art in nada. But instead of proving the impunity of infidelity, the end of Hemingway's life proved the folly of mocking God. His debauched life led him into such complete despair and hopelessness that he put a bullet in his head. How, how sad. Other famous authors such as Sinclair and Lewis and Oscar Wilde, or Sinclair Lewis and Oscar Wilde, who openly attacked the divine moral standard and thumbed their noses at God, mocking his word and his law, were nonetheless subject to the law. Lewis died a pathetic alcoholic in a third-rate clinic in Italy, and Wilde ended up an imprisoned homosexual in shame and disgrace. Near the end of his life, he wrote, I forgot somewhere along the line that what you are in secret, you will someday cry aloud from the housetop. Wow. You can't mock God and get away with it. What you sow, you will reap. And that's what we see here in, the, in their lives. And in the end, they will stand before our God, who is holy and righteous. And they will stand in their own righteousness, which is like filthy rags. And they'll be judged. That's the tragedy. We don't want anyone to be judged by God like that. We want them to come to saving faith in Christ. But tragically, so many will mock God, thumb, thumb their you know, noses at God, and in the end, their life is just death and destruction. 
Schofield makes an interesting observation about these verses. He says, The Spirit is not speaking here to sinners about their sins, but to saints about their meanness. In other words, what he's saying is, in this section on bearing and sharing burdens, we're, are we planting the seeds of love, seeds of forgiveness, and acceptance into the lives of others? Or are we sowing anger and resentment, unforgiveness into their lives? Are you walking in the Spirit or working in the flesh? And that's what Paul talked about in, in Galatians 5. If you're focused on the things of God rather than fleshing things of this world, then the fruit of the Spirit will flow. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But if you're focused on fleshly things, if you're not walking in the Spirit, then the works of the flesh will end up flowing from your life. And Paul said the works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, self-ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, just as I also told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, are we allowing our minds to harbor, you know, grudges or grievances? Are we entertaining impure things? Are we wallowing in self-pity? Are we sowing to the flesh? You know, we are to walk in the Spirit. And as we do, Paul says, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's the, the, the admonition that Paul has given to us. Walk in the spirit, you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's the hardest part, because then we have to surrender. We have to say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. There's the battle. What are we sowing in our lives? Fill yourself up with the things of God. Meditate upon those things, because that's what will come flowing from your life. What you sow is what you'll reap. I like verse 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You know, think about the farmer again. Does he plant a seed, go eat lunch, come back out? Where's the crop? There's nothing growing yet. What's the matter? I must have got some bad seed. No, it's not only planting the seed, then it's taking care of the soil. And it takes time before the crop is produced. The fruit comes. We see this again in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, where Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not vain in the Lord. Have you ever been weary in the work? Yeah, I'm sure we have. I'm sure we have. I've been. And it's the wrong focus. The idea is be steadfast, immovable. Abounding in the work of the Lord because the results may not be what I'm looking for. God has called me to do the work and he's going to produce in his timing. You know, years ago, it used to be like out in California, you know, you hang a Calvary Chapel sign and you got 500 people coming to your church. That's not the way it is. And the thing is, how many people do you need to minister? Two? A hundred? Three hundred? Five hundred? How many? 
You know, very early on in the ministry, that's something that the Lord showed me. In fact, even before I became a pastor in Manitowoc, when I was doing home Bible study, and again, I was working another job, but I was teaching home Bible studies, and I wanted to call the study off that night because there's only going to be two people coming. And I was exhausted, and I just want to, oh, man, I'll just be able to rest tonight. This will be great. And then, you know, just when you're just getting comfortable, then you get that knock on your heart, you know. The Lord goes, so Joe, how many people have to come before you'll have the Bible study? And you know the Lord's nailing you. You know, I mean, it's, you can't argue with him. There's no point because he's trying to show you something. I'm like, okay, Lord, I guess even if there's one who comes, I'll have the Bible study. I'm sorry. And I had to repent. And that's a lesson that stuck with me all these years. How many? Don't get weary in the work. Be steadfast and movable. Continue doing the work. You don't know what God is going to do. Now, some for some, it's not weariness. It's just spiritual laziness. You know, they need to, there has to be a fire lit under them to get them moving. And that's too bad. They're missing out. I, I like Proverbs 26, verses 13 through 16, where we're told the lazy man says there is a lion in the road, a fierce lion in the streets. A door turns on, as a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. The lazy man buries his hand in his bowl, it wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. And it's kind of funny. I can't go out in the street. There's a lion out there. Yeah, really. Okay. And here's the lazy man just laying in bed. He can't even eat. He buries his head in the bowl because he you know, can't bring it up to his mouth. And he thinks he's wise. He's not. Now, James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Yeah, it's great to hear God's word. We need to hear God's word. It's important to hear God's word. But it doesn't end there. You have to apply these things to your life. It's just not a bunch of information. I think I shared with you before, you know, cigarettes. It's Surgeon General warns it could cause lung cancer. It could cause cardiovascular disease. There's the warning, right? I'm not picking on you guys if you smoke or not. That's between you and the Lord. What I'm trying to say is there's the information, right? You've read it. Now, what are you going to do with that information? Are you going to apply it to your life, knowing that you could get lung cancer or heart disease or whatever? Or are you going to ignore it? You see, that's what some do with the Bible. Well, yeah, I know that's, that's in there, but. And whenever you say but to God and his word, you're wrong, you know, I love when God says it, you know, in Ephesians 2, but God, who is rich in mercy. Oh, I love that. But when we say it, it's horrible. Yeah, but God, no. If he told you what to do and you're not doing it, you're wrong. You know, Paul was a man, he was on a mission, let's face it. And we should all have that hard attitude, right? We are on a mission. And at the end of his life, as he's in the Mamertine prison in Rome, and he's waiting to be put to death, he said to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's my heart desire, finishing the race strong. I don't want to just finish the race. I want to finish it strong. You know, I started running again just to get into shape, and my outlet is, or my, my joy is racing. I love to race, and so that's my little outlet there. And I'll tell you, I never start a race to lose. I want to finish strong. Do I win? No, I don't. But I go, I do my best. Why is it any different in the Christian life? Why, with something that is so important as our walk, as we, how we live out our faith, why is this put on the back burner? And we could do sporting stuff or whatever it may be, stronger, better than our Christian faith. That's not right. We want to hear, you know, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Well, look at verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Opportunity. And it doesn't speak, well, the door just didn't open for me. That's not the word that Paul uses here. He's speaking of a fixed period of time or the opportunities that we have in this life. Guess what? Once this life is over, those opportunities are gone. Yes, we'll be with the Lord. But we have opportunities in our life to serve the Lord to the fullest. You know, I've kind of, you know, my wife goes, you know, are you ever going to retire? I said, well, no. My, the way I want to die, and hopefully God is listening, but when I say, I finish the sermon, and I say, amen, that's it, man. I'm ready to go home then. I don't, that's great. While I'm serving, what, all the opportunities that God gives us, are you willing to take those steps of faith and go through those, I guess, doors that God has opened? But the opportunities in your entire life, they happen every single day. Live your fullest for the Lord, guys. Well, verse 11, Paul says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. You know, Paul dictated a lot of these letters to a secretary, and he would conclude his letters with a short note written by him at times, maybe to authenticate his letters because there were some letters circulated that um, were said they were written by Paul and they weren't. Uh, we see that uh, the Thessalonians received a letter that they believed Paul wrote, and he tells them that they didn't in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. In fact, Paul, in Second Thessalonians 3.17, Paul finishes the letter by talking about the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. Now, this is how I authenticate my letters to you guys. Don't forget that. Why did he use large letters? Well, you know, some say it was his poor eyesight. Others say it was uh, some uh, Greek... Um, Uncals, I believe they're called, which are large, unconnected block letters that were easy to read and used often in public notices. That's possible. I tend to lead to his poor eyesight, and that's the reason. But whatever the case may be, this is Paul authenticating his letter. Well, verse 12 says, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these try to compel you to be circumcised, 
only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Now, again, what's the motivation behind these Judaizers or these legalists that were coming in and commanding these believers to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses? Well, they were trying to put a notch in their belt, you might say, by getting these believers to be circumcised. And they gave them a bunch of malarkey. It was a great sales pitch. Mixing law and grace together, and many were buying into it. Now, for me, a few years back, I I have this problem that when salespeople call me on my phone, I feel bad if I hang up on them. I do. My wife has no problem. She's like, boom. I'm like, I listen to the whole, whole thing. And this, yeah, it's bad. Pray for me. I, this one person called up and she was selling subgri- subscriptions to these magazines. And, you know, I listened to her, her spiel and I could get 10 magazines, oh, my favorite ones, for a price that was unbelievable. Well, that was the first clue, but, you know, I missed that. And the catch was I had to subscribe for these magazines for, like, 50 years. It sounded good to me. No, it wasn't that long, but, you know, it was crazy. And I didn't pass it up. I said, well, yeah, that sounds good. And I, it was amazing. I was so lucky because at that specific day that she called me, there happened to be a guy in Manitowoc who could come to the door and authenticate this deal that we made. He just happened to be there. It was incredible. I don't know how it happened. Well, within a few minutes, this guy was at my door. Thank God Julie came home before I signed the papers. And she said, what in the world are you doing? Are you nuts? Now I'm paraphrasing. It wasn't exactly that, but you get the idea. Temporary insanity, and it's lasting longer for me now, but we ended up pulling out of the deal. The guy was not happy because he had to come all the way to my house for this deal, but you know what? I'm doing fine without those magazines. And isn't it amazing what you could be sold? It's incredible. But the wonderful thing is, we have the truth, and the truth will set you free. All the malarkey that's out there that's being spoken of, even by some Christians, can be exposed as false because we have the truth of God's word. Please never go by feelings, because feelings can be wrong. Never say, well, Pastor Joe said. He could be wrong. But God is never wrong. The truth will set you free. So these Judaizers wanted to look good among their fellow legalists by getting these Galatians to be circumcised. How sad. That was their motivation. What's our motivation to seeing people saved? Ah, they're going to spend eternity with Jesus. It's not pride. It's not about me. It's because I didn't save them. God did. I just delivered the message. I just shared or sowed the seed of God's word. But they were prideful. They wanted to look good. Well, verse 14 says, But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but a new 
creation. You know, they used circumcision to get the Galatians to live under the Mosaic law. But Paul's point is, look, it's only the cross that saves, not the law. It's Jesus that makes us a new creation. Paul said in Galatians 2, verses 20 and 21, I have been crucified in Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Absolutely. That's the wonderful thing about our God. What he has given to us, eternal life, everlasting life. It's a free gift. It's not something I deserve. It's not something I have to work for. And God has given it to me. Verse 16 says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. You know, we, Paul says we walk according to this rule. And the word for rule in the Greek um, is the carpenter's or surveyor's line. That's important. I mean, think about it. Imagine boarding a plane, going from California to Hawaii, and the pilot gets on the intercom and he goes, you know, um, we're going to take off in a few minutes here, but I just want to let you know our navigation system is a little bit off, maybe one or two degrees off, but we should be okay. Run away. Get off the plane. If you are one degree off when you're heading to Hawaii, you will miss it by hundreds of miles. See how important navigation is? Like I said, we have the word of God that keeps us in line on target. And the problem comes when we start picking and choosing what we like and don't like, what we want to believe and what we do want to believe. And we're hundreds of miles then off from where God wants us to be. You need to stay on course. Stay in the word of God. Apply it to your life. You know, Paul in Galatians 1 said, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Are you amazed at how much false doctrine is coming into the church today? I am. I'm just, I'm totally amazed. And I kind of, as I start looking back and I I, I see what was going on in the church, how we took the word of God out of people's hands. We're no longer taught the word of God, but now we're telling stories. It's really easy then to bring false doctrine in because people don't know the truth that can set them free from the lies. It's kind of incredible. You need a plumb line. You need to know where you're going, and God is showing us. And I'll tell you what, if we can't trust God's word, let's just fold the book up and go home. There's no point even in believing in God. If Almighty God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, can't give us his word that we can trust, how can we trust him at all then? Or how do we know even what to trust him in? But we can And Paul says, you know, blessed are those who follow the gospel. The faith of Abraham. The Israel of God. Yeah, we are so blessed. Verse 17, from now on, let no one trouble me. 
For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. These marks in his body, the things he suffered, identified him with Christ. He was a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And, you know, as people came against the Lord, well, he took it out on the servants of Christ. He was branded in a sense. Now, suffering is a tough one. Lord, if I'm serving you, why am I suffering? Well, I don't know all the reasons, but God has his reasons. You look through the scriptures and suffering is a big part of the Christian life. And you look at Paul and you look at all the things that he endured in his life as a Christian. You go, wow. You know how many times he was shipwrecked? You know, if I was on a boat and I saw Paul getting on, I'd get off. (laughs) Not a good deal there. And yet, he he wore those those scars as a badge of honor. This is I'm serving my Lord. I'm identifying with Him. And that's what happens in our own lives. Suffering comes. But here's the wonderful thing. We have a family around us, a family of brothers and sisters in the Lord that can help lift us up and encourage us during those difficult times. You know, yeah, Paul's letter to the Galatians was a strong rebuke against legalism, going back to the law for salvation. You know, what they began in the spirit, now they were trying to fulfill by the works of the flesh. It's never going to happen. And I'll close with this this evening, what Paul said in Galatians 6, verses 9 and 10, because I love it. And I think it's so important that we leave here knowing this. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. May we be men and women who forge ahead in the work of the Lord, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God that will set them free. That's that's the seed we sow, is the gospel message. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Keep doing what God has called you to do, and he will produce the fruit in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful letter, Lord. It's so rich and so deep and so important because it's so easy to get caught up in legalism. Oh, Lord, you have to love me because I did this and I did that. And the reality is you loved us while we were still sinners. And now we're children of God. And you're not going to tear up the adoption papers. You love us more than we could ever know. And it's the enemy who sows that doubt into our minds. And we truly need to put on that helmet of salvation and live accordingly to continue doing the work we've been called to do out of love for you and not try to get people bound up in, the, in, in legalism, which isn't going to help them. It's only going to frustrate them and discourage them. And Lord, as always, help us to love people, to help those that are burdened with a heavy load that's come upon their life, Lord, that's weighing them down, that we can help lift them back up, restore them, the grace of of God. Thank you, Lord, for being our God. Thank you for your love. And Lord, continue to work in us and through us for your glory. 
In Jesus' name, amen.